what we've been doing for the last, I don't know how long has it been now, several months, is a red letter study. And again, the red letter study is just studying the words of Jesus that is sometimes printed in red ink in some editions to set them off from all the other stuff. And so we're looking at the words of Jesus, and as I said, trying to understand him from a Hebrew point of view, from that Aramaic language point of view, within that culture, within that context, historically, culturally, linguistically, all of that. That's what we're trying to do, because we are not going to be able to know what Jesus was really saying to us, since he was talking to his own people, and he was recorded by his own people in writing. The the burden is on us to step into those sandals. The burden is on us to interpret and reconstruct because they weren't writing to us specifically in the way that they used their words. So this is what we're trying to do. You know, it is so very hard for us to grasp the, the difference between these two worldviews, between an ancient Eastern worldview and a modern Western worldview. We talk about it all the time, I know, and you're probably getting tired of hearing me say it, but even as much as we've talked about it, I guarantee you it hasn't really sunk in to the depth of the difference between the two, between modern and ancient, East and West. And just as we were talking for the last few Sundays about that micro-macro change and shift in context that Jesus is always working through. Jesus is always teaching in a micro, person to person, heart to heart. We try to then universalize that to the macro, but it doesn't work because the macro is a different context. We talked about that. That's a fundamental change in context that we need to negotiate. We need to understand if we're really going to understand ancient texts like the Bible. But there's another one, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about this morning as it relates directly to the passage that we're going to approach in Matthew 5. And this will be a little bit more (laughs) like school time, you know, but if you can hang with me just for a few minutes to see if we can get this down. I've alluded to this before many times. I briefly explained it, but I really want to dig in a little bit because it directly relates to this passage, but I'm telling you, if you can start to appreciate the difference between these two cultural shifts, then the New Testament is really going to come alive in a much deeper way. So many passages are going to be directly dealing with the difference between an honor-shame society and a guilt-innocence society. There are two different types of, of, actually there's three major ones. It's honor, shame, it's guilt, innocence, and it's fear and power. But we're going to look at the first two this morning because those are the ones that are going to relate most to us. Now, the thing to understand here is that we can't underestimate the impact that the fact that Jesus' culture was an honor, shame culture back in the day, and pretty much throughout the East and the Near East still is honor, shame culture. We can't underestimate the impact that this has on our interpretation of the text. The whole ancient Mediterranean world, the entire Roman world, was an honor-shame society. Rome itself was an honor-shame society. And now the Middle and the Far East, to this day, is still honor and shame. This is something that was really obvious during World War II as we were fighting Japan. Japan is an honor-shame society and still is today. 
and we are a guilt and innocence society. And so the difference between the two, not only were we fighting them on the military front, but we were also trying to understand the differences in the culture, the differences in the way that they thought. What is it about kamikaze pilots? We wouldn't think of doing something like that. But in an honor-shame society, it makes perfect sense. Now, why do we need to have these different cultural shifts in the first place? I want you to think about this. Every culture has to come up with a way to control the behavior of its people. Basic, right? You have to be able to do that. If you can't control the behavior of your people, you lose the entire group. You lose the entire culture. Everything collapses. And even if you think that things are getting so bad here in the world and here in our country, the fact of the matter is because there are still groceries on the shelves, because the trains still run on time. And what it means is that most of the people are still abiding by the rules of the land. It's that haystack distribution curve, right? All of us in the middle are still there. If we weren't, it would be complete anarchy out there. So don't deceive yourself. Most of the people are still controlling their own behavior in such a way that society, that groups can still exist. Now you might be thinking, well, that's what laws are for. Laws are there to govern the, the behavior of the people. And that's true. But think about this. The laws are only as good as the vast majority of the people actually complying with them. If they didn't, the laws wouldn't matter. There has to be something deeper that really controls the behavior of the people so that they will even follow the laws themselves. And we're starting to see the breakdown of laws in this country. We're starting to see more and more people who are not willing to follow them. And if that trend continues, we're going to have a lot of problems in our society and in our culture. For right now, the legal system is holding. But if it gets to be too many people, the legal system will be overwhelmed and it won't be able to govern anything. So how do you keep most people under control? Like I said, there are those three main ones. Do we have one? Of course we do. And we're going to look at these first two. So here we go. Guilt and innocence culture. This is the one that represents us. In a guilt society, did you ever think of our, us in a guilt society? Think about how you grew up, though. Think about your family. Think about your churches. Think about your schools. Think about all the institutions in which you grew up. How much of that guilt was placed on you? How was that guilt defined? Well, it's defined by the law, right? So in a guilt society, control is maintained by creating and continually reinforcing the feeling of guilt and the expectation of punishment now or in the afterlife. Ah, that's where the church comes in, right? For certain condemned behaviors. The guilt worldview focuses on law and punishment and emphasizes individual conscience. A person in this type of culture may ask, is my behavior right or wrong? Most guilt-innocence cultures are individualist, that is, mostly Western, right? That's where the individualist. We measure everything with the yardstick of right and wrong. We make laws that determine innocence and guilt. Knowing and exercising individual rights is a primary concern. We teach children to be law-abiding and expect them to develop a conscience. We define innocence as being right or as righteousness itself. And people feel guilty for what they have done or not done. Communication is direct. It's one of the hallmarks of Western societies. And confrontation is acceptable. Right? 
because it's all about right and wrong. The law is out there. So we can be direct with our communication. We can feel certain about what's right and wrong. And we can confront someone who is not on the right side. So law is fundamental to assigning this guilt and this innocence and also the punishment. And once a person develops a conscience and ethics for themselves, the law can start to disappear, as we've talked about in the past, that disappearing law. But it doesn't go away for the group. It can go away from the individual. They're not so much following laws anymore as they're following their own conscience, which keeps them within the law, keeps the group intact. Now, how does that differ from an honor-shame culture? In a shame society, control is maintained through the indoctrination of shame from smallest childhood or the loss of honor and the complementary threat of ostracism if you lose your honor. The shame-honor worldview seeks an honor balance, often with complementary revenge dynamics. A person in this type of culture will ask, will I be shamed if I do X? Or how will people look at me if I do Y? Shame cultures are typically based on the concepts of pride and honor. Issues aren't considered right or wrong, as we do, but whether they're honorable or dishonorable. Acquiring honor and avoiding shame are the highest goals. Honor-shame cultures are generally collectivist. So self-expression and fulfillment are less important than group success and honor. The honor of the group is only as good as the honor of each of its members. And shame comes from failing to fulfill the group's expectations. Individuals sacrifice for the good of the team, family, village, or country. Communication is indirect. So body language plays a large role, communicates feelings. The unspoken is as significant, if not more significant, than what is spoken. Very different styles of communication for very different reasons. And so here in a shame society, the law is less important than honor and dishonor. And that is fundamental. Even if the person develops a conscience, that person can still be shamed by others because others are going to bring shame to the group that this person is a member of. Remember the man that is born blind that Jesus comes across and his disciples immediately ask him, who sinned, this man or someone in his family that he would be born blind? That is the honor-shame concept that anybody in the family can bring dishonor or bring calamity onto anyone else or the entire group by their own actions. And the law becomes then more just a guide to maintain honor and not an absolute right and wrong in and of itself. And there are just five little aspects here that I want to go through with you. First of all, in an honor-shame society, family defines everything. It's all about family. In collectivist societies, identity is defined by the group you belong to. When two people meet, one of the first items of conversation is figuring out which family, clan, or village the other person is from, since honor is a shared commodity. What one person does brings honor or shame upon the entire community. Children are taught from an early age how to bring honor to the family, and people are expected to be loyal to their community, even at personal cost. In Western cultures, family is much more of a voluntary association. At the age of 18 or so, young adults are encouraged to venture out from the home and find themselves or establish their own lives, unless you have failure to launch, right? 
but there's a huge difference between the way we look at family. Now, when you go back to Jesus' time, what's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. That was fundamental. The family was everything. The family was survival in subsistence cultures. That's why the prodigal son would be so shocking to people who are hearing it in that culture. Here is a son who is supposed to honor his father and his mother, for whom the group, the family, is everything. And he wants to exit, and he wants to take the wealth of the family with him as his inheritance. He should have been stoned to death. And yet the father grants him his wish. And when he loses all that money, brings him back into the family and throws a party. We hear that, and it doesn't, it doesn't check all those boxes. It doesn't create the complete shatter of worldview that it would in those first hearers. When Jesus says to hate your father and mother, your sister and brother, your children, and even your own life in order to follow me, imagine what that would have done in this collectivist honor-shame society. That would just be blowing everyone's minds. There would have been people who were ready to pick up stones. There would have been people who were leaving Jesus' group, and they did. But he's trying to make a point. We need to go beyond these cultural limitations and restrictions if we're going to find the freedom that he's talking about. Jesus' family thought that Jesus was insane when he came back and started preaching. If there had been places to take him, they would have taken him to a clinic. They thought he was crazy. The, word, the literal word was he was beside himself, but they thought he was insane. But mostly what he was doing, he was bringing shame to the family. He had a family, you know. He had brothers and sisters, and he had his, mo- and his mother. Joseph was probably gone by then. But that family was now being harmed in the community by Jesus' actions because they were so outside of everything that they understood. This is also part of the honor-shame. The crucifixion itself. Some scholars say that the crucifixion is possibly responsible for the West, since it became so Christianized, Western Europe, becoming a guilt and innocence society rather than honor-shame. Because the crucifixion is the ultimate shaming. Think about it, you know. They were, first of all, they were crucified in the nude in, in, in Roman times. You, can you imagine anything more humility, humiliating, more shaming? Jesus voluntarily goes to the cross. That new installation of humility, which is not a prized or valued commodity in an honor-shame society, is something that now becomes the basis for a different type of cultural system that will still control the behavior of its members. So family is everything. Secondly, social capital fixes everything and anything. In honor-shame cultures, life is a constant quest to develop and manage an intricate network of relationships, and that is social capital. The most important asset any person has is his or her reputation. If other people respect and know you, then you can accomplish just about anything. Since problems are solved via relationships, A strong social network is essential for success in life. You accrue social capital by giving gifts, helping people, sharing meals. Then you can cash it in when you need help with a problem. Now, in a Western culture, solving a problem through relationships is seen as corrupt and unfair. We use financial capital to buy our goods and services, for which the price is clearly listed and is the same for everyone. 
total difference in the way we outlook. Do you remember the, the uh, story of the unjust steward that Jesus tells? There is a steward who is embezzling from his employer, from his master, and the master finds out, calls him on the carpet. He knows he's going to get canned. So what does he do? He quickly calls in all his master's debtors and forgives their debts because he knows if he does that, then they are going to be obligated to take him in when he has nothing and he's thrown out. And Jesus praises him for that and says, hey, you know, the children of darkness are more shrewd than the children of the light. Do the same thing. Use what he calls unrighteous mammon, that wealth that has been unrighteously retained and should have flowed out to other people. Use that. Let it flow so that when you are in need, you will have this mutual help that is going on. That parable doesn't make any sense from a Western point of view, from a guilt and innocence point of view. It makes total sense within the honor-shame context. Aggression restores honor. When honor is life's most important commodity, then any insult to one's honor must be vigorously defended. Most honor-shame cultures are antagonistic, which means they compete for their honor. When a woman is shamed, and we've heard about this over and over again in Mideast cultures, right? Her male relatives appear weak for failing to protect her. The cultural response is to defend the family's name with aggression, retribution, either against the woman herself or against the aggressor. For Westerners, bad behavior is viewed as a crime against the state, not a personal offense or honor insult that must be balanced to restore honor. And this is what we're going to be talking about today when Jesus is telling us to turn the other cheek. All right? Four, words define status. Honor-shame cultures often have clearly prescribed greetings for people of various social standings. For example, the greeting you say to an elder is different from what you would say to a younger person. Words are tools for defining the social hierarchy. Since the purpose of language is to communicate honor and maintain relational harmony, the concepts of honor and truth look different. A little story. An Afghan-American once explained to me, when I invite an American to my house and they say, let me look at my calendar, that is so insulting. In my culture, you must immediately say yes to affirm the relationship, even if there might be a scheduling conflict. Now, this is just crazy to our ears, right? In this woman's culture, an immediate affirmation is true to the relationship, even if the invitee knows she'll have to cancel later. <laughs> you just always say yes, and then cancel, because words define your status. The yes is defining the relationship, restoring and maintaining the honor. Canceling later, well... You just got to be flexible, right? In Western culture, words communicate information and facts. Indirect communication that prioritizes harmony and status comes across as deceptive, dishonest, and manipulative. It's, it's hard for us to understand the importance of these words. When Jesus talked about murder, he said, okay, you know, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you, even if you have an angry thought, you're already guilty before the court. And if you say racha, which means you worthless one, Okay, already. Do you see how that devalues the honor? He says, then you're guilty before the Supreme Court. And if you say Lela, which means you fool, then you're guilty of the fiery hell, the Gehenna. Those words would guarantee a physical retribution. They have to, 
Because in an honor-shame society, the honor has been completely dismissed, and they have to do something to restore it. They understand that when Jesus says this. We don't get it. But it can be a lot more impactful if we can move into this frame of reference. And finally, food conveys honor. In honor-shame cultures, the people you eat with define both your community and your identity. The The people you eat with. A friend in Central Asia asked me incredulously, do Americans really eat lunch alone in a cubicle or while driving in the car like in the movies? (laughs) Breaking bread together imparts honor. So eating alone is unthinkable. This is why hospitality and meals are so significant in Muslim cultures. Food represents the gift of life. Westerners think of food in far more functional and personal ways, to satisfy hunger, to lose weight, to satisfy cravings. Lunch interrupts our busy schedule, and lounging around the table for hours just drinking tea is seen as a waste of time. These cultures come from a different planet. We need to understand this. And now maybe you can understand what it meant when Jesus just asked Matthew, a tax gatherer who had no honor in Jewish society. He was completely at the bottom. He was pond scum. And Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew was so excited that someone actually paid attention to him, someone like Jesus, that he invites him over for dinner and Jesus accepts. Do you know what it meant in that culture for Jesus to eat with not only Matthew, but all his friends. And the only friends he could possibly have over at his house were other lawbreakers, were other of those who had no honor in their culture, the other tax gatherers, the ones who stood wildly outside the law. And there's Jesus. You know what everybody was thinking about him. Their minds, again, were blown. And the same thing with Zacchaeus, who invites him over to his house as a head tax gatherer. I hope just this much can start to bring home the differences that we're dealing here, the gaps between these cultures. These ancient texts that we are so familiar with, that we think are ours, and we think we understand, come from a culture that is alien to us. And until we start to move into that, we can't really get out what was put in. Now let's see how this relates to what we're going to read about today in Matthew. Start at verse 38, chapter 5. We're in those six antitheses. This is the second to the last one where Jesus uses this formula. You've heard it of old, and he states the macro law. He says, but I'm going to tell you, and he shifts the context into the micro, and he tells how it works in personal relationships. Now, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person. Okay, already, what is up with that? How can Jesus possibly say that? Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, especially that last one. Does that really sound like good advice? Anybody who asks you anything, you got to give? Really? And that go with two miles, uh, you know, if you ask for one, that, that, that you know, sounds kind of poetic, but we don't even know what it means. Let's take all of this and let's put it into the right context so we understand what Jesus is talking about. So first of all, this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth business, that has to do with what is called the lex talionis, 
That simply means the law of retribution. Now Moses here in both Exodus and in Deuteronomy, all the way back in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Moses, as he is writing the law, he is adopting the Lex Talionis from the Babylonians. Now you may have heard of the Hammurabi or the Code of Hammurabi. That's the earliest extant existing example of the of the Code of Hammurabi that we or the uh, Lex Talionis that we have. It comes from Babylon from the 18th century BCE, so it's 400 years before the traditional date of the Exodus when Moses would have been handing down the law. So it predates Hebrews. It has been well established in the Near East, and it's being adopted here for the Hebrews. Now, the, re- the, the full rendition of it in Exodus and in Deuteronomy is a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, and a bruise for a bruise. All of those. And that sounds really harsh to our ears. It sounds inhuman. It sounds brutal. But in an honor-shame society where there is no existing, existing law enforcement, no one's going to enforce any laws. It is up to the people themselves to do this. And all they have to go on is their honor-shame culture. So the lex talionis, this eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was actually a merciful improvement on the retribution that was taking place in an honor-shame society. Restoring the honor that was visited upon any one person in a group required the entire group to take revenge on the other group that the person came from. And then once they did that, then that group was required to take revenge on them. And it started a cycle of retribution that could totally get out of hand. Now this code made the punishment actually fit the crime. And it, most importantly, took the punishment out of the hands of the people themselves and put it into the officials of the state, of the government, of the tribe. So no, no longer were they meeting out this justice. Now it was going to be somebody with a cooler head doing that. That limited the extent of the damage that was being done but also restored the honor, right? It had to balance back out. So if someone injured you, they had to be injured back. Now, are we supposed to take this literally? Did they even take it literally? And then all sorts of questions are going to arise. What if a blind man puts out somebody else's eye? What are you going to do about that? What if it's only partial blindness or maybe just a, just a wounding How do you get the exact same amount of partial blindness in the other person? How do you get the same wound to the other person? You know, how are we supposed to repay these? So in truth, except for murder, and that was distinct from killing someone accidentally, if you actually murdered with with malice and forethought, that required your own life. That was a life for a life. But everything else was basically reduced to a fine. How did they assess the fine? If you lost your eye because someone was careless and knocked your eye out, then what they would do is put you on the auction block for a slave. And they would assess your value with two eyes, and then they would assess your value with one eye. And the difference between the two was the fine that was assessed to the person who harmed you. 
Now, the injured party had the option to refuse, but they would have to be pretty angry not to take the dough, right? But this was a system that they actually used. It made sense. It took it down to limiting the damage, and it still restored the honor that was necessary for both parties to be able to continue in that culture. Now, by Jesus' time, the law had been twisted around in such a way that it was now an excuse to be able to go back to just personal retribution. And this is a lot of what Jesus is talking about. People are now taking the law back into their own hands. They're now hurting someone again, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because they have been injured. And now we're back to the micro again. And this is where Jesus lives. This is where Jesus teaches. He's trying to get the people to value their relationships in such a way that they won't damage them, even if they have the fig leaf of the covering of the law at their discretion, at their disposal. He's trying to get them to see past that. He's trying to get us to see past that, too, by extension. So as always, Jesus is trying to restore the original purpose, the original intent of the law, and shift from the macro understanding back to a micro, love-based, mercy and compassion understanding. So then he goes on and he says, do not resist an evil person. Really, are we supposed to take that literally? Well, some of us have. I'm going to bag on the Quakers again because... A couple Sundays ago, we were talking about how they took him literally when he said, make no oath, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so the Quakers don't take any oaths. They won't serve in the military. They won't make citizenship oaths. They won't be a witness in a court proceeding. They won't do anything where they have to take an oath. They've taken, taken him very literally. And they did the same thing here. That's why Quakers are pacifists. They won't fight. Again, they won't serve in the military because they've taken him very literally. But if we take a look at Romans 12, starting at verse 9, where Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Or we look at James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What we're seeing are these allusions to the fact that we are still supposed to resist evil. We are still supposed to resist people who are perpetrating evil. And we can resist their threats. We can resist real threats. We can defend ourselves. We can protect ourselves. And we can protect others from the incursions or the aggressions of others. And that is clearly allowed in the Old Testament. So Jesus doesn't mean that when he talks about resisting an evil person or not resisting an evil person because he would be clearly contradicting what is present in Scripture even though these New Testament references didn't exist yet, but the Old Testament ones did. So how are we supposed to understand this concept in a Hebrew context? Take a look at Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will keep burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Okay, now we've got to think about what's heaping burning coals. That doesn't sound too friendly. But it is an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It basically means to kill this person with kindness so that their own conscience will burn, and they will see that what they're doing was wrong. In other words, 
destroy your friend, your enemies by turning them into friends is basically the whole idea here. But you see the, the theme that is developing here. Now moving to the, the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 1 Peter 3, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose, for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And finally, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the idea here that Jesus is talking about. When he says, do not resist an evil person. Don't resist the evil person with the same evil that they are perpetrating on you. It's not about tit for tat. It's not about getting even. It's about continuing to consistently do good. Nurturing acts to everyone around you, even if they are antagonists, even if they are doing something difficult for you. We can defend ourselves, we can defend each other, but we can only defend. No aggression. We break off the attack. We do what we need to do, but we don't go after them. Even in the Old Testament, there is a greater imperative than just honor and shame. But moving beyond that to always work for the greater good, even for the good of the individual who is right in front of you. And for those who are ready to accept such a message, those who are ready to finally move into a sense of humility, they are the ones who are closest to what Jesus calls kingdom, this experience. And they are the ones who are most close to breaking through the limits of their cultural system and to find another way of being able to live their lives, which of course is what Jesus is after. Remember, Jesus' context for teaching is always in the micro, always about personal relationships. It doesn't transfer over to groups and to states. It doesn't work there. It's going to be for the individual and the individual relationship. But make no mistake, what he is doing is dismantling the honor-shame system for the micro, for the individual, not for the macro that needs to stand. And he said the law needs to stand until the individual has moved past it into a place where the law is now written on the heart. Then the law can disappear. Then the limitations of the honor-shame system can be transcended. This move into humility, this move into servant leadership. And then he gives four really quick illustrations. And the first one is to slap, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one as well. First of all, this would be seen as an ultimate insult, an ultimate loss of honor, an ultimate shaming. In that culture, the right hand was good and the left hand was dirty. You did everything with the right hand. The only thing you did was unmentionable things with your left hand. But you ate with your right hand, you did everything with your right hand. I don't know what left-handed people did in that society. I'm left-handed, so I, I feel really you know, discriminated against. But you did everything with the right hand. So if you're going to slap someone, you're going to slap someone with the right hand. Just figure it out for yourself. If you're going to slap someone with your right hand on their right cheek, how are you going to do it? It's got to be a backhand. A backhand slap is a slap from a superior to a subordinate. 
always. It is a condescending gesture. It is a shaming gesture. Always a backhand. Now, if you turn your right, your left cheek to the person, you know, how are they going to slap that one? I, I, there was one uh, Jewish scholar I thought it was funny. He said, well, you would force the, pers- the person to slap forehand with their left hand, and that would be considered a sissy slap. You know, they wouldn't do that. You know? So, at any rate, you're diffusing the situation, right? If you don't fight back, even after you've given, given an insult like that, you can de-escalate. You can now diffuse the situation. You can nip it in the bud. But you've got to take quite a hit personally, don't you? I remember back in high school. I don't know how this, this high school guy had such insight back then. But we went on a retreat, and the whole group was giving this one guy a really hard time, just really kind of ragging on him like we would do and, and you know, just telling jokes at his expense. And finally he just said, you know, you guys are really lucky I'm so secure. I still remember that, what, 40-some years later? I love, I just, that was such a great response. It just stopped everything. You guys are lucky I'm so secure. That's what it takes to turn the other cheek if someone has insulted you. And remember, slapping on your right cheek was also an idiom. It was an idiomatic expression for any kind of insult that came to you and put you in that subordinate position. It wasn't just a literal slap. Anything. Are you able to take it? Are you able to then still deal because you have enough internal humility, because you have enough of your own sense of security and assurance of who you are? That takes a very special person to be able to do that. That's what Jesus is trying to engender in every one of us, that we have that blessed assurance, that we have that sense of security and identity and meaning and purpose that allows us to be ourselves even if others are acting badly and to continue to provide what is good. And then if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat also, okay? Now those are Western clothing terms, but in first century Judea, the Jews had two main garments that they wore. One was a tunic, and it was, think of a, of a full-length T-shirt. Basically, that's what it was, like a tunic. You know, it was a T-shirt. It was actually seamless. You know how they did that? I don't even know. But, um, but it was a, usually linen, and it was just like a T-shirt on top, and it went all the way to the ankles. And then secondly, you had a cloak that was kind of like a poncho, you know, to uh, Latin Americans. Um, just two squares sewn together with a space for the, the head to go through. Or it was just a square piece of material that was just draped over the shoulders, and then they would gird it with a belt. That was basically all they wore. Loincloth underneath, sandals, you're good to go. Right? So if someone is suing you for your shirt, which would be your tunic, and you give them your coat as well, well, then you're pretty much naked. There's the shaming. But there's also the humor. The people would have gotten that joke, I think. Right? But what is Jesus saying here? What's he trying to get across? Don't fear the shame that you may feel in order to be able to restore and maintain the personal relationships. Be giving. Work as hard as you can to, to, to find compromise. Don't fight the person legally in the same way that they're trying to fight you. Look for a way to mediate. Look for a way to bring it to a better conclusion where the honor and the shame can be equalized again. Honor can be restored. Relationships can be maintained. Look for that. The other person may not allow it, but you be the one who is driving toward that. Now, this idea of if someone 
asks you to go one mile, you go with them two. This relates to the Romans and the Persians as well, but at this point, it's going to be the Romans in their world who could compel anybody on the roads to give them transport to their military personnel or any official business that needed to happen. So basically, they could commandeer the person, the horse, the boat, the vehicle for any official business, which, of course, is shaming to the person. Now, they could only do this for a specific distance that here is being called a mile because we understand a mile. And then after that distance had been reached, they were free again, and then the personnel, the military personnel, would have to commandeer somebody else to take them the next specific distance and so on and so on. And that's how they would get where they needed to go. But there was great resentment with this, of course. The Romans were hated as the oppressors and the occupiers of their, of their land. The taxes were overbearing, and then this kind of behavior was horrible. So to go beyond the specified distance to show kindness and consideration toward a Roman military person was absolutely unthinkable. That would be voluntary shaming. Jesus is using this not just for that specific official incident, but he's talking about within any relationship that you have. Do you only do what is specifically needed or necessary? Are you willing to go beyond that to really seal and connect the relationship? Are you willing to take on whatever personal humility or shame that may incur in order to be the one who is giving more than just 50%, maybe even more than 100%, to make sure that the relationships are solid? That's what he's talking about here. And then finally, give to him who asks. Really, always? We talked about that a second ago. Without any discernment, whatever, you know? What about being codependent? What about being an enabler? We know that we're not just supposed to continue to give, you know, especially in the recovery culture. We know that that's not going to work. What he's doing is setting up two parallel concepts here. The first one to ask in, in Aramaic is Sha'al. Sha'al means to borrow an object that you're going to give back. All right? It would be like I lend you a book or a lawnmower. You're going to give it back when you're done using it. So it's a mutual sharing of an object. The second word there, which confusingly is translated as borrow, is yitzep, which means to consume something that you're going to return in kind. So if I lend you money or I give you food, you're not going to give me back the same piece of currency that I gave you. You're certainly not going to give back the food that I gave you, but you're going to give me back something in kind. And those two words are used specifically here. Because it's important to understand that Jesus isn't talking about giving out handouts. He's talking about mutually sharing resources within a neighborhood, within a community. It's that cashing it in idea that we had from the Honor Shame Society. If we help you, you'll help me when I'm in need. And that way everybody gets helped. The resources are not held back. They're allowed to flow out. And then they can flow back when they need to. He's trying to develop in the people a sense of letting their wealth, letting their possessions flow downstream, not damming them up out of fear of not having enough, but to trust in the mutual relationships so that everybody's boat is always getting floated where it needs to go. Now, each of these four illustrations point to a letting go. And it's all going to point to a letting go of this honor-shame mandate that they were 
holden, beholden to. We, if we're going to apply this to ourselves, are going to have to see how we have to let go of whatever we're beholden to in our culture and in our personal makeup. But he's talking about letting go of righteous anger and the sense that we need to have some sort of retribution. He's talking about letting go of even our legal rights in favor of good relationships. He's talking about letting go of institutional victimization in favor of personal relationships. And of course, he's talking about letting go of personal possessions when they can flow downstream and they can help somebody else. And finally, he's talking about letting go of our sense of security. Everything that we put in our place and pile up in our lives that comes to define us that is a part of our sense of security, are we willing to let that go? Are we willing to let it flow? The same thing with our station in life that we have built up that we assume is our sense of security. Are we willing to let that go all for the care of another person? All for the sense of kingdom, this quality of life that is only possible when we're absolutely connected, when we have lost that sense of self that cordons us off, that separates us, that keeps us in competition with everyone else. Are we willing to let these things go? Are we willing to find this new type of relationship that Jesus is talking about? Because everything that we know of this world, this life, is contained in that first mile, that first mile of obligation, that first mile of rule following, of law following, of culture following. Everything that we know is contained in those obligations, contained in that mandate. But everything Jesus is trying to teach us of this unseen world, of this unseen life and connection and relationship, is contained in the second mile, when we move beyond the confines, when we move beyond the imagined security, when we voluntarily take on the servitude and the shame and the humility that is necessary for the compassion, for the mercy, for the love to actually flow to another person, Jesus knows until we leave the illusions of security and certainty that we have established in that first mile, the honor and the shame and the guilt and the innocence, we will never experience the release of the second mile that is beyond right and wrong, that is beyond honor and dishonor. And that takes us back to that roomy poem, that beautiful poem that we read just a few Sundays ago, where he says, out beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Can we get there? This is where Jesus is trying to take us. We get stuck at right and wrong and honor and dishonor, and we hold ourselves there, and we try to build our fortress there so that we can feel safe and we can feel secure and we can feel righteous and we can feel that we're better than all of them out there, the great unwashed, who don't have our values. But if we can move beyond that and get to that field, beyond such ideas, 
That's the freedom that Jesus is talking about that will connect us with each other and with our God. Let's go there. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for another morning together, of course. It is so difficult for us, to any human, to move beyond everything we think we know and everything that we've worked so hard to build up that we think will keep us safe. But because we're here, Father, we want more of you. We're not satisfied just letting this be if there is more relationship and more connection that we can have with you and with each other and with this world that you have created. Help us to find within ourselves the strength, the courage, the faith to take those next steps that will take us beyond that will make us willing to let go of things that we've been carrying around for so long as our total reliance because we want our reliance to be on you. So help us, Lord. Thank you for all of this. And thank you for the gift of each other that is so empowering and encouraging as well. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.